Good morning. Welcome to the Freedom and Wealth Podcast. This is your host, Brian Nicolason. Today is Friday, January 27th. We're headed towards the end of the first month of 2023. And uh, that moved that moved fast, as it usually does. In any event, uh, thanks for joining. I think this is going to be a really good podcast. I just spent most of January meeting with our clients and reviewing the fourth quarter of 2022 and the year altogether and looking forward to 2023 and and part of the views that I've expressed to all my clients for 2023 is is that of excitement both about our performance for 2022 and how we're able to deal with a very tough uh, investing environment I think we did really well to control risk and uh, make some money where we could and then 2023 again uh, our view is that of, of excitement for what lies ahead. And so I'm not going to belabor the markets all too much today because I did spend so much time with my clients over the last four weeks doing that. And again, this podcast is designed primarily for my clients. Uh, however, if you're not a client, definitely I hope you get a lot out of it and I hope you become a client. So, you know, you can always enter your name on freedomandwealthusa.com, uh, put in your name as a request. We'll get you a free financial plan. We'll also look at your investment strategy and we'll compare that to our investment strategy, show you what we do and see if we could add some value uh, in your life. So we will, again, just quickly touch on the markets today. The markets are testing a pretty key technical resistance, the 200-day moving average. Uh, We've been flirting with this resistance line all year. We've been bouncing off of it, but as of late, we've flirted with it and now moved above it. So uh, we're a bit constructive in the short term on the stock market. There is a lot of drivers to kind of back the bulls up here and um, not too many headwinds in the very short term. So again, in the very short term, we could see a continue of this rally that's been pretty strong um, and, and pretty wide breadth of this rally. You know, interest rates have come down off their peak significantly. You know, we're the 10 years, I think, 3.4%. Um, at one point, I think it was over 4%. So, you know, we've seen a significant decrease in the 10-year yield uh, across all the yield curve. Interest rates have come down substantially. Um, interest rate volatility, the same thing. You know, 2022 was that of interest rate volatility. They were going up, they were going down. And so that volatility is always bad for equity prices because it's an unknown and equities don't like uncertainty. So the volatility is down, the rates themselves are down. Um, so that's those are both uh, tailwinds behind stock prices. At the same time, you know, employment seems to be holding up. Uh, corporate earnings seem to be holding up okay. Some of the companies are offering some tough guidance, but you know, generally companies are still making money. Uh, people are still spending money. Inflation is coming off significantly from the highs of of June, July this year. Um, So, you know, everything is really moving ahead uh, for the bulls to continue their building their case for, you know, new highs in the stock market, which is, I think, what everybody wants. And again, I can see a little bit more uh, upward position here in equity prices in the short term. Now, at the end of the year, there's some pretty significant cases being built for a bear market. you know, interest rates are likely to remain high. If you listen to the Fed, you know, the bond market's got it wrong, actually. So even though the bond market is showing lower interest rates today, 
you know the the Fed is is in direct opposition to that. So the the Fed could could push um, interest rates to stay high throughout the year, which would be pretty detrimental to the economy because the economy again the, the market is pricing in a lowering of interest rates by the end of the year. So if the Fed holds up what they say they're going to do, and there's really not a lot of precedent for believing the Fed, they generally don't do what they say they're going to do. But if they do, if this is that unique situation where they do, then yeah, that's going to be a, a headwind against stock prices. So interest rates could remain high. Um, likely corporate earnings are going to fall apart at some point. You know, the savings, the United States um, consumer savings have plummeted to below 2019 levels. They skyrocketed during the pandemic because of all the stimulus checks and the lack of travel, uh, lack of consumption on the services side. But because of this inflation, you know, and the reopening, the average American has spent down basically all their savings to lower levels than they had pre-pandemic. And they've run up credit cards to the highest level they've ever been. So now the consumer is going to tap out eventually. Um, you know, different estimates from different people, but some people say maybe another quarter or two where the consumer can keep spending. And, you know, that is something about Americans is they will keep spending until the final credit card gets declined. And then even then they'll apply for a new credit card. But eventually uh, that all stops and uh, maybe that's another quarter or two. But if that's another quarter or two, you know, you're not going to see those reports coming out until August, right? July, August, maybe even October, November. So, you know, we could have a little runway here in the short term and then things could really fall apart from a corporate earnings standpoint, uh, from an interest rate standpoint. And, you know, finally, from a job standpoint, you know, we're seeing this white collar recession across the banking industry, across the um, technology industry, Silicon Valley, right? So these these companies that overhired, you know, on the banking side, it's just the businesses that are so interest rate sensitive that have come to a grinding halt. You know, they're laying people off as well. But nobody's really concerned about this because even, you know, Google laying off 10,000 people or Microsoft laying off 10,000 people, they still have more people than they did pre-pandemic. So, uh, or more people than they did probably at this time last year. So, uh, the job losses in the tech sector and in the banking sector <clears throat> have really been isolated, and uh, people are not too concerned about that being a widespread recessionary item. However, um, those job losses are coming in other sectors that will impact the everyday American, namely construction. You know, in construction, uh, in 2008, I think there was maybe a million or two million jobs lost. That is coming down the pipe faster than anybody knows because you know what's happening right now is. We're still finishing projects that were started, you know, at least on the commercial construction space. You're still starting projects that were started, you know, before interest rates really moved up, right? So these projects were financed or at least began when interest rates were 3%. And uh, now interest rates may be 6 or 7%. Some of those projects are getting squeezed, but they're going to finish those projects. But I can tell you right now, these big companies, when they're penciling in their next projects, they're going to delay them. Right? They're not going to start them. So as soon as these jobs are complete, you know they're going to lay off all these construction workers. So you can see massive layoffs in the construction industry, um, as well as the industrial manufacturing industry. And then that's the everyday American, right? And then you're going to start to hear, oh wow, my brother-in-law got laid off, right? My, you know, Bob down the street got laid off. Once you start seeing those things, you know, then you sit down with your wife and your kids. And you say, you know, look, we're going to not travel. We're not going to do the vacation. We're not going to spend the money. 
um, because, you know, I'm unsure what's going on in the economy. Again, my brother-in-law just got laid off. Bob got laid off, right? And that is the beginning of a true recession where, you know, the whole <clears throat> the whole economy is impacted because the consumers start to, you know, pull in the, the, the belt and, uh, and really not, not spend so much money. And so at that point, corporate earnings could go down substantially on top of the fact that, you know, their pricing power is going to run out, right? Their ability to keep passing these costs on is also going to come to an end. And all that could come to a, a head in third and fourth quarter, and the market could absolutely get annihilated. And you could see new lows, 3,500, 3,300, 3,200 on the S&P. I don't think that's out of the question at all. And that's probably our base case is that you have this short-term rally because we've got everything going for us, but that could fall apart very quickly um, as corporate earnings fall apart, as jobless claims spike um, and interest rates remain high through that process. That's basically the worst case scenario for the end of the year. <clears throat> but then going back to the bulls, you have a long-term bull case, right? Which is, okay, we have this recession. However, inflation is low enough and you have these jobless spikes and you have this corporate earnings recession and the stock market hits new lows. Well, the, the Fed at this point, which we're talking late this year, early next, is going to have all the ammunition they need to lower interest rates to zero and print a bunch of money. And that is true. And so again, I think that there's a tremendous bull case for the market uh, at that point. But then there's a final bear case, which is, okay, this all happens. You have this big money printing session. Well, that's going to reignite the inflation that caused this whole situation in the first place. So that's truly our base case, as complicated as it is. Short-term tailwind behind stock prices, a tough back half of 2023, um, a Fed cutting cycle that will propel equity prices, bond prices, and real estate prices higher. Uh, but then inflation, a resurgence of inflation at some point in the next few years that could be detrimental to equity prices uh, down the road. So again, there's a lot of volatility. And so if you're not working with a professional advisor that has a clear idea of how all these mechanisms work, uh, we do encourage you again to go to freedomandwealthusa.com, put in a, a form submission. You know, let's talk, right? I want to hear your opinion. Um, you know, tell me how you're feeling about this. And let's work together to construct an investment strategy that not only deals with the reality, uh, but also has rules around risk um, so that if we're wrong, you know, we don't lose too much money. Um, so that's really all I want to do on the market side. We can talk on those four things, which is, again, short term bull market, end of the year bear market, uh, 2024 bull market, and then long term secular bear market, uh, you know, inflationary recession inflationary depression. Um, we could talk about all those items. But today, I don't want to do that. I want to talk about inflation in general. Uh, I want to talk about interest rate, free market interest rate environments. Um, and I think this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. It's something that I'm very passionate about. And um, I really enjoy uh, just kind of reading about this stuff because I find it so fascinating. So I want to talk about inflation. Inflation is not a rise in prices. A rise in prices is a side effect of inflation. What inflation is, is an, it's an inflation, right, or an increase in the supply of money in an economy and then the supply of debt in the economy. And so this inflation, we've had inflation, right, since, I don't know, World War I. Right? Um, you know, we've continued to devalue the dollar uh, by inflating the money supply, inflating the supply of debt in the economy. 
Um, so I want to go back to that. World War One. Let's talk about that. I mean, the Fed began their operations. The Federal Reserve began operations in 1914 on what's called the real bills principle. And basically back then, the idea was, okay, the Fed uh, should be able to increase the money supply in the economy, but to a certain level. And so there was a rule where, you know, they could issue, um, you know, they could issue notes that had to be backed by 100% backed by real assets, plus 40% in gold. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, if they wanted to increase the money supply and stimulate the economy, they had to, you know, they could lower interest rates, potentially that they're willing to, to offer the money to the banks. Um, but you know, their member banks would come to them, and they would borrow money to finance, you know, their commercial clients um, in the expansion of, <clears throat> you know, the productive society. And those commercial clients would have to put up 100% collateral, right in their assets, so building or whatever, right. So these were fully collateralized loans. Uh, not only that, but the Fed had to have 40% backing uh, of all loans in gold. So these were 140% backed loans that the Fed was making. Now, the government really couldn't borrow any money from the Fed, right? I mean, the government, if they needed money, you know, they could issue bonds. But the Fed really couldn't buy any bonds. I mean, they, they might have bought a little bit, but the, but the federal government was not a commercial entity. So they, could not, they couldn't supply any collateral to the Fed. So um, the only loans that the Fed could make to the government, right, the only way they could increase money supply by buying bonds from the government was if they had some excess reserves laying around, right, because they had to stay at this 140% level. But if they had excess reserves, they might be able to loan a little bit money to the government, but it's very limited. And it really kept, you know, the government in check um, and kept them in this free floating interest rate environment, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So that was okay, right? I mean, I guess we could all argue whether or not the Fed should or shouldn't be in existence. But if it was going to be in existence using this real bill principle where everything was 100% collateralized, really allowed, you know, the amount of debt in the economy to be limited, right, to the amount of collateral that was out there. Uh, but in World War One, the need for financing on the government side really increased, right? So they started offering war bonds, and the government was really trying to get more money to finance the war effort. So in June of 1917, they relaxed this double requirement, right? So instead of having to have 100% collateral plus 40% gold, they were going to allow the 40% um, to be part of the 100%, right? So now you, you no longer needed all that collateral, and so that increased the money supply a bit. Um, but the government was still limited, right? So maybe, okay, government could get a little bit more money out of the Fed because the Fed now had some excess reserves because of this release of the double requirement, right? Having to have 140%. So now they have this excess collateral. And so they, they could maybe lend a little bit to the government, but it wasn't enough for the government, right? So the government did step two, 1917. This is to allow the backing of loans to the government by non-real bills, meaning there was no collateral needed if it was a government bond, right? So now the Fed was able to print as much money and and loan it to the government, and the government could give them, you know, war bonds, um, liberty bonds, right, as they call them, and there was no collateral needed, right? So now the government had unlimited access to capital from the Fed. And 
Step three was they added a preferential interest rate on those government loans. So not only were they going to be able to buy unlimited amounts of loans uh, or, you know, borrow an unlimited amount of money from the Fed as the Fed was buying their bonds, but they were also giving the Fed uh, or the Fed was giving them a preferential interest rate of 3%. So, and it was actually interesting. There was a little bit of an arbitrage strategy. If you were a member bank, you could go out on the government uh, auction and loan money to the government earning three and a half percent interest and but you could fund that purchase with a bond from the federal reserve that was collateralized and because it was a liberty bond you only had to pay three percent so you actually could make a half a percent um on this strategy so if you were a member bank back in 1917. so in any event you had this three-step process in 1917 to allow the fed to monetize the federal government right Prior to this, the Fed was unable to loan money to the government because there was had to be collateral and the government couldn't collateralize because they don't have assets, right? I mean, so the government couldn't do it. So um, so this really changed everything. And you had this massive increase in the money supply because now the Fed could conjure up as much money as they could potentially ever need. And uh, there was no limitation. And inflation went from you know about one percent pre-war to about anywhere from thirteen to twenty percent annually during the war, uh, and by nineteen twenty the price of eggs doubled, and was permanently doubled, right? And so the standard of living went down generally uh, because you now have this big inflation number. So I mean this was a very obvious correlation between money printing, right? The Fed monetizing government expenses, right? By printing money and buying bonds from the government. And directly, like three years later, all of a sudden inflation's between 13 and 20% and the cost of goods went up double, right? By 1920. This happened so quickly, right? Like literally just in three years, you had money printing, 13 to 20% inflation. So anybody that wants to tell us, right? Oh, we don't know how inflation happened. Right? I mean, Jerome Powell said that. Biden definitely, he doesn't know what his name is, but... He also doesn't know how inflation works. Oh, we don't know what it was. It's a global phenomenon. No, it's it's because you printed money. That's what why you have inflation. Inflation is printing of money. You have a rise of prices because you printed all this money and there's more money floating around the system. So that's what happened in 1917. And this really set a precedent for everything after that. You know, whether it was... Um, you know, financing World War II or Vietnam or any of the wars that that continued or just the expansion of the size of government eventually got so out of control, they had to take us off the gold standard. They did it twice, right? Uh, but finally, 1971, they finally took us off for the for permanent uh, off of the gold standard. And so, you know, it, it's purely because of this Federal Reserve change in 1917. And what's really interesting, actually, if you think about why we have this inflation you know, when they were doing this back then, they were trying to finance in today's dollars, $334 billion cost of World War One, in today's dollars, right? So it wasn't even that much money. We have a defense spending this year of $858 billion. Again, today's dollars. So what they had to finance, what they had to change the entire Federal Reserve system to do was 334 billion. We're spending 858 billion this year alone. We spent 800 billion in checks because of COVID stimulus checks. So 
our government today has so many of these huge expenses that are being financed by the Fed because of this precedent that was set that the Fed could monetize the federal government's actions. And this is the problem. This is why you're never actually going to get out of the issue that we're in. You are never going to be in a low interest rate, uh, low inflation environment ever again in American history. That time is gone. We are going to a perpetual higher interest rate environment. And as much as they want to manipulate the calculations, like they're changing CPI this year, you know, they can do that and they can hide it, right? But the fact is the cost of goods are going up and the standard of living is going down. And that is the story of America today. And that's a story that we all need to be aware of. Um, and so that leads me really to, well, what is the better solution, right? Like, okay, I'm pointing out an issue that the Federal Reserve now has the power since 1917. They have this power to just print money and, and, and they print money and they just give it to the government. And the government racks up massive amounts of debt, $31 trillion in debt, and it's only getting worse. And the inflation is only going to get worse as well, the, the cost, the rising prices. So that's the problem. But what's the solution? Well, the solution is a natural interest rate market, a free interest rate market. And, you know, I've been studying, you know, the free market economy for a decade, um, you know, studying Austrian economics um, and really trying to understand how a free market operates. Because once you understand how a free market operates, then you can really start to put into perspective all the manipulative tactics that the U.S. government utilizes to make it not a free market. Um, but, you know, really, when I read and understood how the interest rate market works to um, stimulate an economy when it's needed and to cool off a hot economy when when prices are going up, to me, it's probably the most amazing thing about a free market is the interest rate environment. And the amount of impact it has to uh, create prosperity is is unprecedented. And the fact that the U.S. government manipulates it every single day is probably the worst thing that they do, right? I mean, and the, the government does a lot of bad stuff to hinder growth and hinder prosperity and reduce our standard of living. But the idea that they manipulate the interest rate market and the money supply the way they do, probably in the long term, will prove to be the worst thing that they've ever done to us. And they've done a lot of bad stuff to American citizens. Um, but the, and I guess we can finalize, finish that topic on uh, the deepening discussions that are happening between the Saudis and President Xi in the People's Republic of China regarding uh, trading oil in the Chinese Yuan. Um, and all this is because of this manipulation. It's all because the U.S. economy, um, the U.S. government didn't allow our economy to function in a free-floating interest rate environment because they're greedy, because they want power, because they want to spend more money, right? That is the reason why they have to manipulate interest rates, and that is the reason why we're going to potentially lose our position as the world reserve currency. Um, and the reduction in standard of living and the rise in inflation that will be set off by that you couldn't even imagine, right? You can't even imagine how bad that's going to be. Um, and I'm pretty sure at this point it's inevitable. Um, so, but in, in any event, let's, let's get back to the topic at hand. Let's talk about what the real solution is. How does a natural interest rate environment work? And how should the Fed be fighting inflation today? You know, 
watching the interest rate environment is truly like a symphony, okay? It makes everything operate. See, what happens is, let's say we're in a position of excess demand and a lack of supply, like something we've been dealing with recently. And so prices are going up because there's a lack of supply and there's too much demand. Well, naturally what would happen is there's going to be some entrepreneurs and some business people that want to fill that demand. Um, you know, they want to increase the supply. So there's a demand for um, new operational factories and um, additions of land, labor, and capital to, to increase production. So entrepreneurs and business people are going to require capital to do that. And so they're going to, there's going to be a demand for money, um, a demand for investment. And so interest rates will rise in a classical supply and demand fashion. Um, and so there will be a rise in interest rates as people are uh, really looking for more capital. And as the consumers realize that interest rates are going up, well, then they're going to be discouraged from borrowing money on credit cards, for instance, and they're going to be encouraged to save money for later. So there's going to be a natural um, uh, a natural move for people to give up spending today to save uh, and to get those higher interest rates and so that they can spend later. So naturally, it will drive capital into the banks. Um, those uh, business folks and entrepreneurs will borrow the money and they will increase productivity once productivity is up to a level where prices are no longer increasing because there's the supply and demand are in balance, or maybe there is even an oversupply, uh, well, then the interest rates will naturally go down uh, to encourage your demand, right, and discourage savings. So now as interest rates go down, people are going to want to borrow more. Uh, they're not going to be enticed to save money with, you know, low interest rates, so they won't save quite as much. They'll start spending more now, which will increase demand to match the supply. And again, if it gets out of balance, demand you know gets above supply again. Well, then naturally, you know, entrepreneurs will want to come in, fill that demand. They'll require more capital to increase supply, and so interest rates will rise, which will encourage people to stop spending, lower demand, put money into the banks, save money to get those higher interest rates, which then will again feed those entrepreneurs to build more productivity, more factories, and increase supply. And this will naturally fluctuate to make sure that the economy is producing enough goods um, and that consumers are not overspending, right? And so what happened is the federal government manipulated interest rates so significantly, right? In 2001 and then in 2008 particularly, and then in COVID again, you know, we basically have had zero interest, interest rates for a decade. We've had negative interest rates in real terms, right? We had 2% inflation, 0% interest. So you've been losing 2% by saving money. So why would you save money? You're going to spend money, right? So consumers spent ungodly amounts of money and they borrowed ungodly amounts of money because interest rates were so low, there was no reward for being a saver and an investor. So not only did it discourage savings and increase consumption, but it also encouraged risky savings for the savings that was happening. And that's why equity prices went up so much because you had a discouraged, you know, you basically were discouraged to buy safe assets like bonds or debt instruments, and you were encouraged to take risk in more speculative investments. And so all of this massive consumption and lack of savings causes bubbles, right? It causes speculative 
manias, uh, GameStops and Bitcoins and all this speculative stuff, um, high value tech stocks trading at 50, 60, 70 times earnings and, and bonds trading for 0% interest rates, right? Uh, and individuals taking on a ton of debt, taking on big mortgages because interest rates were low and, and the government was pinning it there, right? The government was manipulating it. And so then you had this inflation because, well, hey, you have all this demand. You don't have supply. Well, if you would let the natural interest rate environment operate and there was a lack of supply, then you would have had massive amounts of capital going in to the productive parts of the economy because interest rates would have naturally rose to, to take care of this. And your productivity would have went up while your demand went down and it would have evened out prices and you wouldn't have this massive price spike. Okay. But you have this massive price spike because the federal government has manipulated interest rates so radically. So now they're trying to, again, manipulate interest rates to take care of prices, right? So it's like, it's like, it's like uh, every time, you know, they do something, they screw it up. And so, well, you know, what's the solution? More government. Because <laughs> like, okay, well, government screws it up, then how do you fix that? Well, maybe more government will work. Like, it's like the definition of insanity. But now they're trying to fix the problem with more government, right? More interest rate manipulation. And they're working on some antiquated model that basically says you have to destroy jobs to lower inflation, which is like the most ridiculous thing in the world. Destroying jobs should not be the mission of raising interest rates. The mission of raising interest rates should be to discourage spending and encourage savings. And if you question the economy as to whether or not that's happening, that's not happening. The savings rate for the United States citizens are, is lower than it was pre-pandemic. It's absolutely plummeted since 2020 and 2021 when we had a massive increase in savings. So you had this destruction of savings. And at the same time, the, the credit cards are going up through the roof, right? So consumers are borrowing more money than ever. And so the fact that interest rates are three and a half, four percent 4%, clearly it's not high enough to discourage the spending and to encourage the savings because savings is plummeting and credit cards are going through the roof. So we're not, you know, the fact that we've discouraged savings, that we haven't been able to discourage spending, um, means that interest rates really aren't high enough, right? And that's what I've said. Interest rates, if you really want to take care of inflation permanently, you would let the interest rates rise naturally. But if you're not going to do that, if you're going to manipulate them, they're going to have to go to 8, 10%, right? Because until you get to there, then people are going to continue to spend. And if you raising interest rates destroys jobs, right, then those jobs probably shouldn't have existed in the first place. Those jobs probably were created out of a mania that was created by a low interest rate environment and massive consumption and a lack of, of productivity. So in essence, what a free market does is it operates as a symphony. It keeps everything working in line. It keeps prices stable. And you wouldn't need a Federal Reserve if you would just let the, the system operate. But you have to have a Federal Reserve because you have a government that is starving for power, that wants to spend more money. And until you get rid of that, then you can't get rid of the Federal Reserve. And until you get rid of the Federal Reserve, then you can't ever have price stability. And if you can't have price stability, you can't have an economy that operates as the number one economy in the world. And eventually, that is the risk that we have, is losing that spot as the number one economy of the world. And I'm not saying that the Chinese yuan is going to do it. China's got plenty of their own problems. But the fact is, the Saudis and the Chinese are going to are having deep discussions about 
you know, working together to trade oil in Chinese yuan. And that is going to put tremendous downward pressure on the value of the dollar as the demand for dollar goes down because oil is not going to be traded in the dollar, at least on the Chinese side, potentially Russian side, Iranian side, right? So there's plenty of players that are aligning on that side of the global power system to go against the US dollar. And that poses tremendous risk because if our dollar goes down in value and our prices continue to spike, then we're going to be living in this perpetually inflationary environment. And with the government continuing to try and fix the problem with more government, um, it's throwing gasoline on the fire. So uh, speaking of fire, what we have to do is just let it burn. Let the interest rates rise naturally. Let the, the bad investments go bad. Let the folks that need to go bankrupt go bankrupt, right? And until you do that, you're not going to allow any new growth in the forest. And so that's the issue that we're all going to be facing. And so when I talked at the beginning of the podcast about the four different sections of the upcoming economy, right? Bull market, bear market, bull market, bear market. It's because of the volatility. It's because until we fix this situation, we're going to be have nothing but increasing volatility. And that's going to be the curse of all investors of the next decade and two decades and three decades is that the volatility is only going to increase. And so as an investor, you just have to be aware of that. You have to deal with the cards that you're dealt and you have to have a rules-based approach to deal with that and to make money during that volatility. And I think we've done a great job building a platform partnered with Redwood Private Wealth to do that. So please go to freedomandwealthusa.com, put your name in and uh, check out what we do. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and a great weekend. And if your team's playing this weekend, good luck. Um, I guess unless you're an Eagles fan. Cheers. The information on this podcast is educational in nature and is not intended to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, or other purpose. Information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of subjects discussed. The information provided should not be considered tax or legal advice. Discussions and answers to questions do not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice and is limited to the dissemination of general information and may not be suitable for members of the listening audience. It should not be construed by any consumer as solicitation to affect or attempt to affect transactions in securities or the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of advisory services offered through Nicolaisen Wealth Partners Incorporated. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should always seek advice from a financial insurance legal or tax professional that takes into account all the particular facts and circumstances of an investor's own situation.